I'm now pleased to introduce Desiree Taylor. A Texan by birth, she's an entrepreneur, researcher, and storyteller. She earned two master's degrees in education and American studies from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and specializes in history presentations that get people talking about justice, survival, hope, and what it means to thrive. She's here to take us into the world of an extraordinary woman born into slavery in 1813. Harriet Jacobs successfully escaped, then wrote a chronicle of her experiences, both while enslaved and as a fugitive. Her autobiography gained renown, yet over time, many came to believe it was fiction. Nevertheless, the book and Harriet Jacobs persisted. The book is still read widely today, and you can check out copies from our circulating shelves, and is recognized as a true account, despite the twists and turns of its history. Please join me in welcoming Desiree Taylor. Thanks, Hannah. I appreciate that uh, lovely introduction. I'm so excited to be here today and welcome uh, everyone. And we're going to go on a fantastic journey uh, talking about a very interesting woman. So thanks for being here. Uh, the Boston Athenaeum couldn't be a better place to present this. Uh, these people are nothing but knowledgeable, but more than that, they're kind. So thank you so much, Hannah, Victoria, and Elsa. So let's begin. Um, Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs again, was a woman born into slavery, and she managed to do something extraordinary, which is write her own story. That's pretty rare. Now, uh, Hannah mentioned how she fell into uh, obscurity. People thought she was a fiction, which really goes along with how we deal with our history, especially our problematic history in the United States. Um, thanks to a scholar, quite late, actually, in the 1980s, um, you know, she was a feminist. She started to realize, you know, I don't know a lot about women, so I'm going to look into the lives of women. And I know even less, she said, this is a white woman, Jean Fagan Yellen, she said, I know even less about women of color. So she got a hold of this story. At that time, everybody was convinced that this story was written by a white abolitionist. Um, you know, that was the prevailing idea. But she dug deeper, and she said, you know, I, th I think this woman might be real. She dug deeper, and she ended up finding out that this woman really existed. Harriet had written her autobiography uh, under the name of Linda. And in the autobiography, she changes everybody's name. But uh, Jean Fagan Yellen managed to go back and say, okay, she says this happened on this date in this city. Um, can I find anybody who did that in that city on that date? And then let's see if I can narrow it down. She managed to do this in the 1980s, well, I guess the end of the 70s, the 80s. And then she realizes that Harriet, that Linda was Harriet Jacobs. And she puts together all these wonderful facts that we're going to, you know, talk about today. So that's a little bit of the story in a nutshell. Um, let's see. Let me give you a little bit of an overview quickly of her life, though, of Harriet Jacobs' life. Because this story is quite confusing. Now, that's a lot of stuff to read. I'm going to read it to you really quick. Okay, she was born in 1913-1915. How can somebody be born in those two years? Well, we don't know. She said she was born, I mean, 18, 1813 and 1815. She always thought she was born in 1815, but uh, uh, a sale uh, where she was bequeathed to somebody, it was not a, actually a sale, but a document states that she was born in 1813. Anyway, so that's a little controversy, but she was born, anyhow, in North Carolina. She was born to two slaves, Delilah and Elijah. They were owned by different people. Jacob's mother dies when she's six, okay, and her brother is four. They go to live with their owner, Margaret Hornablow. She's taught by this owner to read, spell, and sew. The owner dies when Harriet is 12. She's willed um, to the owner's sister's three-year-old child, Mary Matilda. Jacob's father dies when she's 12. Um, Jacob starts an affair a little time later when she's 15 with a guy called Samuel Treadwell Sawyer. Um, he goes on to be in our Congress as a representative. He's a white man. But she starts an affair with him. Again, we're going to unpack all this over the hour. She has a son, Joseph, when she's about 16, a daughter, Louisa, when she's um, about 19, both uh, by Samuel Sawyer. 
1835, uh, Jacob escapes from Dr. Norcom. Who's Dr. Norcom? In the uh, book, he's Dr. Flint. That is the father of the three-year-old girl she's bequeathed to. So she lives in his house. So his real name is, is Norcom. So in 1835, she escapes from Dr. North, uh, Norcom, and she goes into a crawl space above her grandmother's uh, porch and storage room. You see, she escapes from there in 1842. She's in there for seven years. Um, yeah, that's very unpleasant. We'll talk about that. Uh, then, after she gets out in 1842, she's on the run for another decade. That's 10 more years. In 1852, so she's trying to get away, she's trying not to get recaptured for, for a decade. In 1852, a friend and employer named Cornelia Grinnell Willis pays Dr. Norcombe's daughter's husband $300 for Harriet. In 1853 to 58, Harriet writes this book. Here's a copy of it, you see it's all book tab because we're gonna read some of that today. She writes this book, it's called um, In the Life, the Life of a Slave Girl Written by Herself, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl Written by Herself. And again, she uses that alias and changes the names of the book. In 1861, she publishes the book in guess what city? Boston, Boston is very famous for publishers uh, still, but especially at that time. 1861, she self-publishes it though. So she says she's right around like what we're doing today, self-publishing more than going to the big houses. But anyway, she self-publishes it, the Civil War starts. In 1863, uh, January 1st, that's an important date. 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. And Jacob, what does she decide to do? She goes south. Okay, and she's trying to help people there. They're called contrabands because uh, when the slaves escape, if they were owned by somebody in the, in the south, now they're, they're property that, of people in the south. They're now in the north, so they're contraband. And um, she goes with her daughter. In 1864, she opens a school in Alexandria, Virginia for slaves. In 1865, she goes back to Edenton, that's where she was born, North Carolina, to bring supplies, uh, start relief work, and then the Civil War ends in 1865. In 1868, uh, Jacobs and her daughter travels to England to raise money for an orphanage and elders home. You know, what's interesting is when you look at a lot of slave autobiographies, they're always doing that. They're always opening these orphanages and these uh, elder homes. That's because, you know, if, if, if regular people of color were not allowed uh, places, you can imagine if they're children or old, there was just nowhere for these folks to go. In 1870, Jacobs returns to Cambridge. Uh, she comes up here, she had come uh, to Cambridge various times throughout her run, you know, from North uh, Norcom for those deca that decade. She comes back up here to run a boarding house. She runs one house, uh, sells it, gets another one, and mostly the people who are in that boarding house are people from the schools, Harvard, professors, etc. 1873, uh, Jacob's brother dies in Cambridge and he's buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery. 1878, Harriet and Louisa move to Washington, D.C. She runs a boarding house. That one's an interesting uh, thing because, again, the war is over. People are co of color are actually entering into government, something that we're not going to see after the end of Reconstruction, again, till modern times. Um, but she uh, goes down there because there's nowhere for these folks to stay. Regular boarding houses aren't even allowing them to stay. So she goes down there in 1878 with her daughter, opens up a colored boarding house. 1884, Louisa works for Howard University, that's a, a historically um, uh, black college, and she works in their industrial department teaching sewing and cooking. And she's the only woman in that department, so then we got women's rights too, right? Okay, 1896, Louisa participates in organizing the National Association of the Women, women of Color in Washington, D.C. Oh, and I bet you are going, hey, we can't see that. Okay, so, um, where was I? So 1897, so we've skipped over this, but I read it all to you. <laughs> okay, 1897, Harriet Jacobs uh, dies in Washington, D.C. Her daughter returns her up to this area, and she's actually buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery. 
Yeah, in 1898, so we're going to continue a little bit of Harriet's legacy. 1898, uh, Louisa is a, a matron at the National Home for Relief of Destitute Colored Women and Children. And are you seeing that? Okay. And what's interesting there is that uh, Elizabeth Keckley, have you guys heard of Elizabeth Keckley? She was, a, somebody said yes, she was the black seamstress of Mrs. Lincoln. Now, she helped start that home, and in 1903, Mrs. Keckley becomes a resident. She is destitute, unfortunately, at that time. So even after the war, it was really hard for people to, um, people of color to, to move in and gain economic stability in the society. But they treated her very well. In 1903, also, Louisa... Um, goes on to Howard University as a matron this time. And in 1917, she dies in Brookline, Massachusetts, the home of Edith Willis Grinnell, and that was one of the daughters of Corn Cornelia Willis, and that's the woman who purchases Harriet. So there we go. That's their life in a nutshell. Now, we've heard it all, right, and we can go home. A lot of times we do that with history. Like, oh, this happened, this happened, and then it's over. Um, but there's more to the story, and how does that apply to us? So I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about that, and we're going to start with this. Okay. Paul McCartney, Ebony and Ivory. I don't know if you guys remember that song. It came out in 1982. I don't really want to, you know hurt you and sing it to you, but it's like ebony and ivory, you know, living together in perfect harmony. And, you know, growing up, I had this vision that I was going to find an integrated community, that uh, not just people, but like uh, institutionalized integration. And I'm in my 40s now, and I was like, wait a minute, how did I get this idea? I had this really... And it was nebulous, and I'm like, I don't know how I got this idea that I was going to go into the world and find this institutionalized integration. And I realized it was from pop music videos in the 1980s. These music videos, if you go on YouTube, they're all available. You can see these videos. They are having a good time, and they are integrated. Now, I was born in 1972. Uh, believe it or not, that's only five years after the United States uh, decided that people, white people and black people could marry legally. Uh, that's Loving versus Virginia. So that's just five years before I was born, but yet I had this idea. And let me show you a little bit more. So we got Paul McCartney there and Stevie Wonder, and this... Please, I hope you go and Google this. Lionel Richie's All Night Long from 1983. As you see this video, we've got white, black, Asian. Uh, we've got everybody in there. Okay, but why is that not what we're really living with today? We've got to go back from 1982, 83 to 1782. 1783. Because, you know, those I realized, when I finally realized it was the 1980 music videos that I was looking towards and thought I was going to find, I didn't realize that till again, I was in my 40s. And I realized something hopeful, though. Those videos are not corny, and they, sh and they should have happened, because Ebony and Ivory and All Night Long are dreams there are people who put together what should be. So thank God for Paul McCartney and uh, Stevie Wonder and Lionel Richie. Those are dreams. But we need something to base them on. And that's our real story. We cannot ignore it and forget it. We have to look at it so we can have a firm foundation to build those dreams. Now, I want to mention one other thing. Before I came here, I wanted to kind of tie this into how this is relevant today. As a graduate student in Boston, I did a lot of work at the Boston Public Schools. Um, I was very familiar with two of them, two high schools, Charlestown High and Boston Latin. I called the schools to ask one question. I wanted to talk to the librarians, and I wanted to say, ask them, how many books are in your library? Now, if somebody asked you, Hannah, how many books are in here, could you answer it? Yeah, Florida. It's a ridiculous question to ask a librarian. But I knew that in Charlestown it could be answered. I could probably go over there and count those books myself. So I called. Turns out they do not have a library. They are not calling it a library. They are calling it a learning center. I said, is it open every day? They said, no. I called Boston Latin again that I was very familiar with. Um, it's a ridiculous question. Their, their library is... 
It's beautiful. The, the racial makeup of those two schools are almost opposite of each other. And so the, these stories, if we're going to build those dreams, we've got to tell the truth. And we've got to see how we got here. I don't think the people in the Charlestown, especially the people on the front lines, are, are doing anything malicious. But for some reason, the support isn't there. Somehow we got to that point. So again, let's go back to 1782. In 1782, um, Harriet starts her book with her grandmother. She talks about her grandmother. And her grandmother in 1782 was, um, she was a child of a, of a planter actually. And, um, let me get over that page so I can keep on with my notes here. Okay, so, She's the child of a planter, and he, during the Revolutionary War, emancipates his family. He's got a wife, and he's got three kids, including Harriet's grandmother. But uh, he, they are sailing under British colors, and they're captured by the Americans and re-enslaved. They're not given to the same buyers, though. All those four people, the wife and the three kids, are sold to whoever wants them, so they're all split up. So her mother ends up in North Carolina, uh, the slave of a, of a tavern owner called Hornablow. She doesn't know where her siblings or the mother went. So um, this is something that actually exists in American culture. Uh, this, this I want to read, though, first before we talk about uh, uh, the two um, uh, proclamations there, because there's two proclamations there, the Dunmore Proclamation and the Phillipsburg Proclamation. Has anybody in here heard of either one? Now that's amazing because these are pivotal in American history. They're basically, the British um, had two proclamations that said, if you're a slave, you can come with us and fight with us and you'll be free. So during that time is when uh, Harriet's grandmother is, is caught and brought back. Now Harriet describes her grandmother in this whole story. I want to read you a little passage how she actually ends the book. She was going to end the book on a political note, but her editor, even back at that time, said, you know, end it, end it here on your own story. Here's what she had to say. It has been painful to me in many ways to recall the dreary years I passed in bondage. I would gladly forget them if I could. Yet the retrospection is not altogether without solace. For with those gloomy recollections come tender memories of my good old grandmother, like light fleecy clouds floating over a dark and troubled sea. So because we don't have a picture of grandmother, uh, this is going to stand in for her. These are these fleecy clouds over the dark and troubled sea. Now, let's look here. We all know that Star Spangled Banner. Uh, we love that song. Whitney Houston knocked it out of the park. Uh, a lot of people have done it and done it very well. This is a, a stanza we no longer sing. It says, no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Now that's in there, and what it means is it goes back to that proclamation, Dunmore Proclamation. All those slaves that are going to those British people and fighting for the British against the Americans, in this stanza, it says that they are only going to have the terror of flight and the gloom of the grave, because we're going to win this thing. So there we go. We have that in our history. So those two proclamations are very important. Now we're going to go ahead a little bit here. Oh, let's see. Grandmother gets a talent. She's again enslaved. And she's having a really hard life, but she makes something monumental of her life through bread and crackers, believe it or not. She gets really good at being indispensable. And these crackers are famous throughout the entire county. Now what happens is, she asks her employer, after all her work is done, can she, um, can she bake and sell? 
and sell and make money from these things. Uh, her owner says, yes, she can. Uh, so she ends up tucking money away through the years off of crackers, basically, and bread and jams and things like that. Now, uh, let's see. One thing we have to note is Dr. Norcom. Dr. Norcom, again, who, who in the future is gonna own Harriet. At this time, he doesn't own her yet. But he does have a stake in grandmother. Um, grandmother's owner ends up dying. And everybody thought she was going to set grandmother free. But Dr. Norcom comes along and says, you know what? She owes me some money. So you're getting sold. I'm so sorry. And so, unfortunately, uh, grandmother comes up with a scheme of her own. Now, this whole thing about Dr. Norcom may have not even been true. Throughout uh, Gene Fagan Yellen's research, even how into how he gets Harriet, there's a question that he may have been cooking the books. Okay, this guy was not altogether uh, uh, ethical, and he was everybody's executor also. So at this time, when he ends up selling grandmother, uh, perhaps that wasn't in the woman's will that, uh, you know, perhaps it was in the woman's will that she would be uh, freed, and he decided perhaps to, to go ahead and sell mother, grandmother. Now we're going to pop up ahead because grandmother works a scheme of her own. And I'm going to tell... Um, have a look at that with you guys here. Let's see. Dr Grandmother decides that she is going to ask the sister of her own, her dead owner, to help her with something. She's going to ask her if she can work something out with her own money, with grandmother's own money, to end up working this scheme. So what happens is grandmother ends up. Um, uh, going to be sold, and I'm going to read you a little bit from Harriet's book about that. Okay, she says, on the appointed day, the customary advertisement was posted up, proclaiming that there would be a public sale of Negroes, horses, etc. Dr. Flint, again, Dr. Norcom's uh, name in the book is Flint because it's changed, called to tell grandmother that he was unwilling to wound her feelings by putting her up on auction and that he would prefer to dispose of her at a private sale. Grandmother saw through his hypocrisy. She understood very well that he was ashamed of the job. She was a very spirited woman. And if he was base enough to sell her when her mistress thought that she should be free, she was determined the public should know it. She had for a long time supplied many families with crackers and preserves. Consequently, Aunt Marthy, as she was called, was generally known, and everybody knew who she was and respected her intelligence and good character. Her long and faithful service in the family was also well known, and the intention of her mistress to leave her free. When the day of sale came, she took her place among the chattels, and at the first call, she sprang upon the auction block. Many voices called out, shame, shame, who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there, that's no place for you. Without saying a word, she quietly awaited her fate. No bid for her came. At last, a feeble voice said, $50. It came from a maiden lady, 70 years old. The sister of my grandmother's deceased mistress. She had lived 40 years under the same roof with grandmother, and she knew how faithfully she had served her owners and how cruelly she had been defrauded of her rights. She resolved to protect her. The auctioneer waited for the higher, a higher bid, but her wishes were respected. No one bid above her. She could neither read nor write, and when the bill of sale was made out, she signed it with a cross. But what consequence was that when she had a big heart overflowing with human kindness? She gave the old servant her freedom. Now, Harriet's brother had also written a book. John S. wrote his autobiography, and also where uh, Jean Fagan Yellen, again, digs, digs, digs to find, to find out you know, when something got sold or somebody got sold, how something was bought, like the house, etc. And it corroborates what uh, Harriet's brother had said in his book that grandmother had worked this scheme with this woman. That the, and now, let's remember, this woman, if she wanted to just take that money, there is nothing legally 
that Harriet's grandmother could have done. She has to trust that lady. So anyway, she does and it works out. Now, we're gonna go on a little bit further. Let's see here. The childhood of um, Harriet was, was a really, really sad one. As I mentioned that she didn't know she was a slave until she was six years old and her mother died. And, and how she found that out is she's taken back by the owner. But let's unpack this story for a little bit. She lives in a happy home with her father and mother who are both slaves of different people. But when the mother dies, the, the, pro, the, the, the progeny of the mother follows the, the, uh, her servitude, her enslavement. So that means that the father has no rights to his children. So once the mother dies, she's taken back by her owner. So not only does he lose his dead wife, but his two children are taken out of the home and placed somewhere else. So you can see that Harriet's life is getting very, very stormy. Uh, her mother dies when she's six, and just to let you know, under these kind of circumstances, you're not gonna live long. Her father dies just six years later. So um, we can imagine that kind of heartbreak that he must have endured when, when those kids were also taken. And she talks about that in her book, what kind of father he was. Um, so now we're going to, okay. You know, not only was Mr. Flint the kind of person that he was, but we have some issues going on with Mrs. Flint. And we're going to um, uh, talk about that for a minute. Mrs. Flint, and here's what she has to say about Mrs. Norcom, Flint in the book. Mrs. Flint, like many Southern women, was totally... Uh, deficient in energy. She was not, she did not have strength to super, superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong that she could sit in an easy chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from every stroke of the lash. She was a member of the church, but partaking in the Lord's Supper did not seem to put her in a Christian frame of mind. If dinner was not served at the exact time on a particular Sunday, she would station herself at the kitchen and wait till it was all dished and then spit in all the kettles and pans that had been used for cooking. She did this to pre prevent the cook and her children from eking out their meager fare from the remains of the gravy and other scrappings. The slaves could get nothing to eat except what they chose to give. Provisions were weighed out pound and ounce three times a day, and I can assure you she gave them no chance to eat wheat from her bread or flour from her barrel. She knew how many biscuits a quart of uh, flour would make and exactly the size they ought to be. Dr. Flint was an epicure. The cook never set a table. Uh, without fear and trembling. For if there happened to be a dish not to his liking, he would either order her whipped or compel her to eat every mouthful in his presence. The poor hungry creature might not have objected to eating it, but she object objected to having it, the master cram it down as she choked. Now, what's interesting about this is why. We talk a lot about these people, you know, these slaveholders, and they're doing all this stuff, but why are they doing it? Um, in order to help us today, we need to go deep and kind of, you know, because these are us, you know, and some th this is going on somewhere uh, now. We have a lot of abuse in this society. So we need to ask questions, you know, what is happening? Why is this happening? Now, Mrs. Norcom has a situation. Harriet is in her house and um, she's growing up. She's becoming a beautiful young woman. Now, Harriet talks a lot about what happens to women in slavery. Uh, that is very true for the Norcom household. And it's so interesting. You can go online and you can get a picture of Dr. Norcom and his wife. Um, in this write-up that I saw on the North, one of these North Carolina sites, it, everything glowing as we hear about history. Oh, they did this philanthropy, and they did this, and it's just beautiful. But when you look into the household of underneath what Harriet's writing about, it's quite shocking. And again, we have a lot of that abuse today, and I believe it stems from the kind of history that the United States has. 
Now, one of the things that becomes very obvious is race. We saw a picture of Harriet. She looks very bright. She could be a, a white woman. I don't mean bright in intelligence, but skin color. She looks like she has some color to her, but this is not unusual back in our, our days of slavery. There was so much, let's just say it, rape and abuse going on, and some, was, some things that were willing between people. But we have so many people that, are, that look basically white that it's hard to even differentiate who's black and who's white. Now, Harriet's um, situation is Dr. Norcom takes a, uh, an interest in her sexually. So Mrs. Norcom is feeling put upon. She, but Harriet mentions later in her book that some women would speak up and tell their husbands this is not right. Now, let's remember the time period. This is supposed to be the moral uh, uh, <laughs> height of humanity. It's the Victorian. We're, we're slipping into the Victorian era here of uh, just womanhood, pure womanhood. And a lot of women did capitalize on that to take the higher moral road and to talk to their husbands about uh, relations with slaves. But Mrs. Norcom cannot do it or won't do it. So you're going to see over time that she's, she's not taking care of her own needs. So she's becoming crazy and bitter. Now as far as race, she's got this woman in her house that looks like maybe a younger version of herself. But let's go through race really quickly in American history with slavery. This is um, uh, Harriet's daughter, Louisa. During this time period, Harriet uh, wants to put her master off. She comes up with this scheme. She's only about 15. She comes up with a scheme that um, if she has an affair with especially another white man, that her, her owner, which he actually doesn't own her, the child, uh, his child does, but that he's going to not really want her in the house and just get her out of there, especially if she has children. So she ends up having children uh, with a guy who ends up being in, in our Congress. We read that in, her, in the intro there. Uh, he's a white man in town, and this is one of the, the children. She had Louisa, and again, if you saw this picture and you didn't know, would you think this was a slave? I would just say, huh, it looks like a white lady. Now, this happens throughout her lifetime as well, people not knowing that she's a person of color. This is their son. This particular picture of him makes him look a little darker. It depends on the picture you see. But again, he definitely has a lot of white characteristics. This is not the only thing that we're going to find out through history that that is so prevalent. Now again, in families, it went back and forth. This is a picture of Jacob's half-brother, Elijah Knox. As you can see, he's much darker. These questions bring up uh, uh, the question of how do you make a white person? How do you make a black person? There's not much, you know, you mix a little bit here and take away a little bit here. You got a white person, you got a black person, they may be related. So what is race? We're going to find that over and over again. Anybody know the story of Ellen and William Craft? The crafts come up here. She looks very light. He's dark. That's her husband. They actually bandage her up and say she's a sickly man and that that's her Negro slave. And they escape. And they end up up here too. But again, race comes into play. And if you could play it, it might come out to your advantage. Here is a, a picture. Uh, this is an artist's rendition of escaping uh, a family. Uh, if you notice, the, the, the two on the front, the child and the man, look quite dark, but the woman on the back looks quite light. Again, he says he saw this, the artist does, uh, that he, he actually witnessed this event. Now, here's anybody heard of George Latimer? Uh, this guy is very important in Massachusetts uh, history because uh, there's something called the Latimer Law. Basically, it says that people looking to recapture their slaves cannot use Massachusetts personnel or our jails. So here's a picture of Mr. Latimer. But I ask you, did the person who painted this ever see Mr. Latimer? Because we have had, we have pictures of him and there he is. He does not look dark as it was painted. Mr. Latimer looks very light. That's him in 1870. We're going to go a little bit further. That's him in 1880. And here he is again in 1880 dressed up in his duds. Okay, he's doing something nice there. We don't know what. 
having his picture taken. And if we look closely at Mr. Latimer, if we did not know this was a Negro slave, we would think that he was a white man. Now I'm telling you, some people had their own emancipation proclamations and got their children into whiteness. Whiteness is not a thing. It's something that is rel relatively new, but we've based our entire cultures on it. If you, if you look white and fall into this situation, especially if you have access to economics, economic power, you may find yourself in a school with a library like this one. If not, you may find yourself in a library that's the school that's library challenged. And it's all based on something that's not real. People are different. They come from different places, different cultures. I'm different from you. But at the same time, there's not any race. Short people, tall people. You could breed tall people and short people and you'd probably you know, come up with different races if you wanted to base it on that. But no, it's not really real. So again, here's some more pictures. These are slaves, different colors. This is, you know, you can Google this. George H. Hanks, he, uh, it's a long story about this. I won't go into it. This was a fundraiser, but these are exactly escaped slaves. But they're trying to build up uh, money for schools and stuff by taking their pictures and selling them. So as you can see, these are all escaped slaves. Some of these look white, some of them look black. Now, we're gonna get back to our story. Mrs. Norcom, seeing this whole situation um, of the children that Harriet has, uh, her husband uh, uh, continually after her, is literally losing her mind. She wants Harriet finally out of the house. So we're going to talk about that. Let's see. Okay. So what happens is... Here's an example of the, Mrs. Norcom going crazy. Mr. Norcom has come up with a scheme. He's got a child. He decides, I'm gonna move my child into my rooms, and of course, uh, we need a nurse in there, and that nurse is gonna be Harriet, and she's gonna get to stay overnight in my rooms. Well, Mrs. Norcom somehow hears about this, and she said, okay, uh, let's see, she says, after a while, my mistress sent for me to come to her room. Her first question was, did you know you were to sleep in the doctor's room? Yes, ma'am. Who told you? My master. Will you answer truly all that I have asked? Yes, ma'am. Tell me then, as you hope to be forgiven, are you innocent of what I have accused you? Because she's thinking, you know, she's interested in the doctor. She, so Harriet says, I am. I am innocent. She handed me a Bible and said, lay your hand on your heart, kiss this holy book, and swear before God that you will tell me the truth. I took the oath she required, and I did it with a clear conscience. You have taken God's holy word to testify your innocence, said she. If you have deceived me, beware. Now take the stool, sit down, look me directly in the face, and tell me all that has passed between your master and you. I did as she ordered. As I went on my account, her color frequently uh, changed and she wept and sometimes groaned. She spoke in tones so sad that I was touched with grief for her. Her tears came to my eyes, but I was soon convinced that her emotions rose from anger and wounded pride. She felt that her marriage vows were desecrated, her dignity insulted, but she had no compassion for the poor victim of her husband's perfidy. She pitied herself as a martyr, but she was incapable of feeling for the condition and shame and misery in which her unfortunate helpless slave was placed. Yet perhaps she had some touch of feeling for me, for when uh, the conference ended, she spoke kindly and promised to protect me. I should have been comforted by this assurance if I could have had confidence in it. But my experience in slavery had filled me with distrust. She was not a very refined woman and not much control over her passions. I was the object of her jealousy and consequently of her hatred. And I knew what I, and I knew not what kindness I could expect or have confidence. From, uh, from under her circumstances in which I was placed, I could not blame her. Slaveholders' wives feel as other women would under certain circumstances. The fire of her temper was kindled by small sparks, and now the flame became so intense that the doctor was obliged to give up his intended arrangement. 
I knew I had ignited the torch and I expected to suffer for it afterwards, but I felt too thankful to my mistress for the timely aid she rendered me to care much about that. She now took me to sleep in a room adjoining her own. There I was the object of her special care, though not of her special comfort. For she spent a sleepless night to watch, many a sleepless night to watch over me. Sometimes I woke up and found her bending over me. At other times whispered in my ear as though it was her husband who was speaking to me and listened to hear what I might answer. If she, if she startled me on occasions, she would, uh, she would glide stealthily away. And the next morning she would tell me I had been talking in my sleep and ask who I was talking to. At last, I began to be fearful for my life. I had been threatened, and you can imagine, better than I can describe, what an unpleasant sensation it must produce to wake up in the dead of night and find a jealous woman bending over you. Terrible as this experience was, I had fears that it would give place to one more terrible. My mistress grew weary of her vigils. They did not prove satisfactory. She changed her tactics. She now tried to trick... Uh, uh, the trick of accusing my master of crime in my presence and gave my name as the author of the accusation. To my utter astonishment, he replied, I don't believe it, but if she did acknowledge it, you tortured her into exposing me. Tortured into exposing him. Truly, Satan had no difficulty in distinguishing the color of his soul. I understood his object in making this false representation. It was to show me that I had gained nothing by seeking the protection of my mistress, that the power was still all in his own hands. I pitied Mrs. Flint. She was a second wife, many years junior to her husband, and the hoary-haired miscreant was enough to try the patience of a wiser and a better woman. She was completely foiled and knew not how to proceed. She would gladly have had me flogged for my supposed false oath but I have already stated the doctor would not allow anyone to whip me. The old sinner was politic. The application of the lash might have led to remarks that would have exposed him in the eyes of his children and grandchildren. How often I did rejoice that I lived in town where all the inhabitants knew each other. If I had been on a remote plantation or lost among the multitude of a crowded city, I should not be a living woman to this day. So we see the situation that's happening. Now, could it get worse? Yes, it does. So what happens is Harriet, again, has had this affair with this white man and had these children. So Norcom is still trying to figure out how he's going to, to seduce her. Now, some people have asked, why might he not have raped her? She mentioned again and again in the book that he is very interested in power perhaps more than anything else. So he wants to subdue, she want, he wants to subdue her. He threatens to send her to a plantation, he does own one. And not only that, he says, I will send your children there too and break them on the plantation. Well, she knows she's gotta get out. She's all too clear about this plantation business. So again, we see a picture here of grandmother. This stands in for grandmother with the uh, fleecy clouds uh, uh, over the sea there. Grandmother doesn't know what to do. She, Harriet runs away. She ends up staying with friends. She stays in a swamp. She gets bit by something, poisoned. She's all around. Grandmother is like, don't run away. I'm trying to get money to buy you. Just stay where you're at. But she knows she can't. She can't. So finally, grandmother decides that she's got to trust somebody. A woman, a slaveholder, who's friendly with her, comes over and is talking to her and asks her, you know, what's wrong? Are you okay? And um, grandmother looks into her face, and she's known this woman for a long time, and she tells her, she tells her what's going on with Harriet. Now this woman decides that she's going to help that she's gonna hide Harriet. She's like, you know, I'll get, we'll, we'll figure out something. And these are two women banding together beyond race. So she takes um, Harriet into, um, uh, into her home. And I'm gonna read you a little bit about um, uh, how, how Harriet gets there. 
I received a message to leave my friend's house at such an hour and to go to a certain place where a friend would be waiting for me. As a matter of prudence, no names were mentioned. I had no means of conjecturing who I was to meet or where I was going. I did not like to be thus blindfolded. But I had no choice. I would not, um, it would not do for me to remain where I was. I disguised, my, disguised myself, summoned up my courage to meet the worst, and went to the appointed place. My friend Betty was there. She was the last person I expected to see. We hurried along in silence. The pain in my leg was so intense that it seemed as if I should drop, but fear gave me strength. We, and that's because she got bid by this thing. We reached the house and entered unobserved. Her first words were, honey, now you're safe. Dem's devils ain't gonna come serve, search this house. When I get you into Massa's safe place, I will bring some nice hot supper. I expect she needed after this gearing. Betty's vocation led her to think that eating was the most important thing in life. She did not realize that my heart was too full for me to care much about supper. Betty is the cook. So another thing that's very interesting in this book that Harriet does, Harriet, again, was taught to read and write by her um, mistress, but she uses the words of the people that she's around as they spoke. Now, we'll find that years later, just like Alice Walker in The Color Purple. You know, that's so interesting. But And Alice Walker apparently has read this book. But anyway, so, so Betty has come to pick her up. When she's safely in the, this mistress's house, she gets a letter from her brother, and here's what he has to say. Wherever you are, dear sister, because she wants to come out. Oh, and Dr. Norcombe's done a lot of stuff. He's jailed her family and everything. But he says, wherever you are, dear sister, I beg you not to come here. We are all much better off than you are. If you come, you will ruin us all. They would force you to tell where you've been, and that, and that, or they would kill you. Take the advice of your friends, if not for the sake of me and your children, at least for the sake of those you would ruin. They're all in jail, and it's apparently very ugly times uh, in, in, in jail uh, back during that time. But unfortunately, she knows that she, she can't come out, so she stays hidden uh, where she, she is. And here's, here's something that um, is going to become important as we move along, what these people are risking for getting caught. This is an ad that Jean Fagan Yellen found that was placed in the same town, okay, about this time. This was for one of his uh, escaped slaves, again, another man, uh, not Dr. Norcom. Okay, lurking about, this is what the ad said, lurking about some of her acquaintances or relatives in Eden. Uh, and it says, I will give the above reward for the said Negro penny if delivered to me or contained in any jail so that I get her again. Or I will give the same re reward for her head alone. So you can see that they, that it's, that it's, if they're caught, this whole thing is a bust. Now, she, she ends up getting, um, uh, staying with this uh, woman who's a slave holder for a while. Then she goes into that deep, uh, to the, uh, this place. This is above her grandmother's um, storeroom. And it's seven by nine by three. So she can't stand up in there. It's only three feet tall, seven feet wide, nine feet long, but it's sloped. So she's really in a confined place. So they get her out of the, the, the mistress's house there and into this place here. But again, she stays in that place for seven years. Um, before she goes, um, let's see. Okay, after she's in here for about seven years, she gets a chance uh, to get out. And this is very, very uh, sad story because um, her grandmother is the one who actually uh, uh, goofs up here. They, once after she's in, you can read all about her staying the seven years in the, in this space, but at the very end of it, they still don't want her to escape because of all these things that they're facing. And this is again after seven years. But finally she says, the next morning I peep through my loophole. 
She drilled a hole in this place where she's been able to look out for seven years and saw that it was dark and cloudy. At night I received news that the wind was ahead and the vessel had not sailed. Her, her um, friend told her there was a vessel that she could get on. Uh, basically, she doesn't want to take it, but grandmother, who's one of her daughters, had just died. Grandmother is more and more under her burdens and is coming to visit Harriet. Now, this is on one of those occasions. She brought in some uh, uh, allusion to Aunt Nancy, or her dead daughter, the daughter she had recently buried, and then she lost all control of herself. This is. This is through knocks and things that her grandmother is talking th to, to her through the crawl space. And sometimes at night, Harriet could get down for a few minutes. So she comes down to give solace to her grandmother. As she st stood there trembling and sobbing, a voice from the piazza called out, is that you, Aunt Marthy? Grandmother was startled. In her, agitated, in her agitation, she opened the door without thinking of me and in stepped Jenny, the mischievous housemaid, who had tried to enter my room when I was concealed in the house of my white benefactress. I've been hunting everywhere for you, Aunt Marthy. Mrs. wants you to send her some of your nice crackers. I slumped down behind a barrel and was entirely scared, uh, but screamed. But I imagined that Jenny was looking directly at my spot and my ha heart beat violently. My grandmother immediately thought what she had done and went out quickly with Jenny to count the ca crackers and then she locked the door behind her. She returned to me a few minutes in the perfect picture of despair. Poor child, she exclaimed, my carelessness has ruined you. The boat ain't gone yet. Get ready immediately and go with Fanny. I ain't got another word to say against it now. There's no telling what might happen this day. Uncle, F Uncle Philip was sent for and he agreed with mother in thinking that Jenny would inform Dr. Flint in less than 24 hours. So basically, um, she finally gets a chance to get out of this hole she does it, um, she, um, what's really amazing is the Fanny that, that I mentioned in that reading is another woman that was in hiding. During this time, I think we forget how many people were under floorboards and behind cupboards and hiding during slavery, how many escaped slaves there actually were. But once Harriet finally gets out, she hooks up with this woman here, um, Amy Post. She's a friend and confident and a feminist, and she's an abolitionist. And what's really poignant in, in some letters that Jean Fagan Yellen found was that Harriet didn't want to get involved with the abolitionists because she was very afraid to tell her story about how she had these children to escape slavery and work this scheme because this is the height of this pure womanhood. But she goes ahead and confides in her. Um, and then Amy Post is saying, you know, you gotta write this down. Eventually she is convinced. She uh, meets Lydia Maria Child, that's her editor of this book. And uh, again, she starts writing it. One thing to realize is after Harriet gets out of that hole, her time is not done running. She runs for a whole decade until ultimately this woman here uh, buys her freedom for $300. You know, it's a really sad thing in the book. Uh, Harriet mentions that she doesn't like to look upon that document of sale, but that she's hoping that in the future antiquarians can use it. And I think that's what we're doing here today. So Mrs. Willis there is the one who um, made that purchase. And she purchased, Dr. Norcom dies. He spent his whole life uh, trying to shore up his manhood by getting this slave. Again, it's about passion. What kind of passion is that to have uh, in life? That's not a good enough passion. But uh, so it's his daughter that comes looking for Harriet and her husband. And they're the ones that get the money finally from Cornelia. Okay, a little bit about what's going on here, and then I'm going to wrap it up, is that um, this picture of Snow, Harriet's brother ends up escaping from slavery also, and he um, uh, meets up with some, um, some uh, 
people, some abolitionists, and he really goes on the circuit all around talking about the horrors of slavery and how it should end. He, they have this to say in the Herkimer Free, uh, Freeman about a guy that he hooks up with, which is um, a guy named Jonathan Walker, who was jailed and stamped on his hand for slave stealer. He was an abolitionist. Here's what the paper has to say about um, uh, that guy and John on their speaking arrangements. That well-known sufferer for righteousness, uh, say, Captain Jonathan Walker, an honest-hearted, weather-beaten Christian sailor, arrived here on the 25th, and after one more meeting uh, here on New Year's night, expects to show his hand amongst the people and other sections of the county, that stamp that he got for abolitionists. He is accompanied from Boston by John S. Jacobs, a noble man of sable brow, who, though but nine years since a Carolina slave, has well improved his self-gained freedom and speaks with fluency and depth of interest, scarcely excelled by any of his predecessors, even Douglas himself. Now, also her son, we didn't hear a lot about Harriet's son. Harriet's son was a, a printer apprentice here in Boston. They keep going all through, they go to New York, they go to Boston, they go to Cambridge, all trying to again get away from the Nor uh, Norcoms. But the son, they don't know he's a slave and they don't know he's not white in the printing shop, but they find out and all of a sudden they don't want him there. So he ends up going um, to uh, become a whaler and so he travels all over. He goes with his uncle John S. to pan for gold in, in California. He joins a whaling ship. He ends up in Australia. But then the track ends there. Uh, they don't know what happened to him. He would have written if he was alive. But apparently he died uh, somewhere along his journey. Now, again, this is an important thing that Harriet, during her freedom, gets to present a flag uh, they're trying to open up a hospital, and she's one of the speakers. And this is what she says. I think this is so beautiful. Soldiers, what, and she's talking to black uh, uh, Civil War soldiers. Soldiers, what we have got came through the strength and valor of your right arms. Three years ago, this flag had no significance for you. We could not cherish it as our emblem of freedom. You had no part in the bloody struggle for your country. Your patriotism was spurned, but today you are in the arms, are in arms for the freedom of your race and the defense of your country. Today this flag is significant to you. Soldiers, you have made it a symbol of freedom for the slave. Then take the dear flag, dear old flag, and resolve that it shall be the beacon of liberty for the oppressed of all lands and of every soldier on American soil. And then they sing that star-spangled banner probably with missing that stanza. But uh, uh, not just myself, but other historians have mentioned that the Civil War is a time of a rebirth of the nation to its principles, that that flag really can stand for freedom, that we still have the chance today to make it so. Now again, uh, Louisa goes on to be a feminist, Feminism helps this woman here, and that's Jean Fagan Yellen. Uh, she again starts this whole journey because of feminism. And there's some graves that we have there. We have uh, Harriet, her daughter, and her brother. Uh, her brother's a little smaller because they, they came up uh, apparently with that money um, themselves. It was, but the other two had more sponsors uh, from, from white uh, patrons. Uh, so then we have that, that's in Mount Auburn Cemetery. So again, why do I put this guy up there? Because this guy, I actually should have told you before I showed it. Louisa dies in April of uh, 1917 in Brookline. Who is born in Brookline the very next month? This guy. So all of this history is pretty recent. So he's born a month after Louisa, Harriet's daughter, dies. So then back to this stuff. Hopefully this history will allow us to actually meet these things and actually dance together as we're seeing in Lionel Richie's All Night Long. And believe it or not, at the end of that video, I couldn't stand it. 
there's actually a rising sun. Benjamin Franklin makes a, a statement during uh, the Continental Congress, uh, when, when not the Continental, the the, the um, convention to come up with our with our uh, uh, government here in America. He makes a, a statement that is that a rising sun or a setting sun that he sees behind the chair of Washington, and he decides that it is a rising sun. At the end of this video, there's actually a rising sun. So again. If we could come together and really have our dreams based on something, you know, but that's going to be decided in the lives of our people, whether it is a rising or a setting sun on our country. So thank you so much for coming here today and hearing the story of Harriet Jacobs. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be happy to, to take them. Thank you. <laughs>